Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come this morning with an earnest desire to be able to understand your word, to be able to know it, and then to be able to apply it. And Lord, today as we talk about the definition of greatness in your kingdom, I pray that you would help us, Father, by your spirit, to have our values, our understanding, how we think about life to be deconstructed today so that you could rebuild it in accordance with your word. We pray that you would give us humility, um, Lord, give us understanding. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would apply your word to our hearts today. Father, help me This is a complicated passage, a lot of different nuances, a singular point that I pray you'd make clear and evident. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading an article this week about the amazing number of corporate executives who, when they got to the top of their career, blew it. Either involved in some sort of scandal or some sort of illegal behavior that resulted in them losing their role. And the title of the piece was, The Corner Office Alters Nice Guys. Here's what it said. The very traits that helped leaders accumulate control in the first place all but disappear once they rise to power. Once the nice guys reach the top, the headiness of wielding power causes them to morph into a very different kind of beast. They lose their ability to empathize with others, especially lesser mortals, and ignore information that doesn't conform what they, or confirm what they already believe. Most tellingly, perhaps, they learn to excuse faults in themselves that they are quick to condemn in others. Even the most virtuous people can be undone 
by the corner office. Translation, be sure that you know where true greatness lies and what true greatness is because the world-based, self-focused lure of promotion, advancement, and success can easily destroy you. Hear me, those of you who look up at a vice president's role or a chief executive role and you wish you could be there, Hear me, those of you who are on a fast path, a track to success. All too often, when someone gets there, it ends up being disastrous. All you have to do is think like everyone else, live like everyone else, act like everyone else, and then think you did it by yourself, and it won't be long until you're another body bag on the road of life. And worse, if you name the name of Christ, you'll be a train wreck with a fish bumper sticker. The gravitational pull of our culture and the lure of our flesh are so strong that a follower of Jesus dare not set his or her life on autopilot. Therefore, what we need is a constant reorientation with the horizon of God's Word. And that's why we're here. The question is, what would Jesus really do if he lived in our world? What would he do in 21st century America? What would Jesus really do in our context? How would he think? How would he act? Who would he hang around? What would his tones be? Today we're going to begin a seven-message series that will take us from chapters 18 all the way to chapter 20. And this section records some important words of Jesus to his disciples about how they are to live. This is designed to be kind of a transition passage or a section between where we've been, Jesus as an enigma, to another section where Jesus will begin his triumphant march into Jerusalem, have growing conflict with the Pharisees, and eventually will begin his long trek towards the cross. But before we get there, Jesus has some heart-to-heart words with his disciples about things like, how do you define greatness? What do you do when people do you wrong? How do you forgive people? Is divorce okay? Why are there more kids in the kingdom than rich men? And why will the last be first and the first last? So what Jesus is going to call his disciples to, and all of us, is to think differently about the society in which we live. To redefine greatness. To reorient our minds and our hearts to what's really important and what his value set is. Our text this morning asks and answers a very important question, a basic question. The question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom? In other words, in terms of the pecking order of what God loves and what he likes, what's at the top? What does God really want? What is it that he really looks at and says, that's beautiful? And what happens here is that Jesus uses this question and its answer to establish some foundational things about the future kingdom and also about how we are to live now. And here's the principle. It is this, that greatness is found in the dependent, life-transforming faith. The greatness is found in dependent, life-transforming faith. A simple word, faith. Most of you know that word. But I want to show you today that this word of faith, in its essence, about dependency and what it means to rely upon Christ, becomes the foundation of everything and, at the end of the day, the ultimate definition of greatness that people who are great in the kingdom are those who understand the importance of dependent faith. So Matthew 18 begins with a question from his disciples. 
Matthew just throws it out there. His disciples say, Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Matthew just puts the question out there as if there was no context, as if they were just walking along one day and the disciples, out of curiosity, said, hey, Lord, who's the greatest in the kingdom? But Mark 9 gives us some further color. I love Mark's accounts of these things. Mark 9 says this, and they came to Capernaum, this is Mark 9, 33 and 34, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? (laughs) I love this. What were you discussing on the way? It's sort of like uh, as a parent when you know your kids are, you can hear negative tones in the basement and you're like, hey, what's going on down there? Long silence. They said to him, well, look at verse 34, but they kept silent. Ah, see, not much has changed in 2,000 years. And the reason they kept silent, according to Mark, was because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, this is really interesting. The disciples are seriously busted here, okay? So Jesus says, what were you arguing about? And apparently they're walking along the road and they're discussing who's great. I'm greater. Can you imagine this? I'm greater than you. No, no, no. I'm greater than you. And apparently what is happening here, I can only guess that this Peter, James, and John close circle that Jesus had along with a transfiguration event has created a little bit of competition between the disciples, Jesus then seizes on the opportunity to teach the disciples a really important lesson by using a child. He uses the child as an object lesson. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus called a child to come into the midst of them, puts the child there, and then he says something profound and radical. Verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I want you to notice what Jesus says here. First, notice that he elevates the discussion to not just the subject of who's the greatest in the kingdom, but he elevates it to include who even gets in the kingdom. So the disciples want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you, unless you become like this child, you don't even get in the kingdom. It'd be like... Two boys arguing about what position they're going to have on the team and whether or not they're going to start. No, I'm going to be a starter. No, I'm going to be a starter. I'm going to play point guard. I'm going to play forward. And the coach comes along and says, hey, here's the application. Hope you make the team. So here they're arguing about what position they're going to be in. And Jesus says, if you're not careful, you're not even going to get in. So he shocks them by identifying that there is a much bigger issue in play here. In other words, if you miss what Jesus is saying about greatness... Rank is the least of your problems. Jesus elevates the issue to lower the self-opinion of the disciples and help them realize that what he is talking about here is a really big deal. Notice then, secondly, he says that no one enters the kingdom without dependent, life-transforming faith. He gives his disciples a twofold conditional statement. He says, unless... You turn and become like little children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So first he says that they must turn. The word here is not the word for repent that we see in other parts of the scripture, but the meaning is similar. It means a spiritual turning or a conversion. It carries the idea of you going down a different path now, a different life. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, look, unless you completely change how you are thinking, you will miss the kingdom. If you think that greatness in the kingdom is defined as you are thinking, you're not just going to miss greatness, fellas. You're going to miss the entire kingdom itself. 
And so what Jesus is calling for here is a radical mindset shift, a change of thinking, a change of understanding, a change of value set. And then secondly, he says that they must become like children. Now, he's got this child in the midst of them, and he says that they must become like children. Now, that raises the question, why children? What is it about becoming like a child that Jesus is advocating? Maybe he's doing a little bit of play on words because they were acting like children in the road, and he tells them they must become like children, even though they already had been children sinfully. Jesus is saying here that they must become somehow like children in order to get in. Here's what he's saying. He's showing the disciples that their self-assertions, their reliance on their own strength, and their self-confidence is in stark contrast to a child who is utterly dependent. They had to turn from their self-concern, from their self-justification, and their self-advancement, and they had to embrace a dependency that they were neglecting or they will not just not be great, they won't even be in the kingdom. You see, without genuine dependency, nobody gets into the kingdom. How so? Well, here is the essence of the gospel. It is that you come to Christ by faith alone. There's no more dependent moment in all of your life than when you come to the realization that you cannot earn God's favor. No matter what you do, it'll never be enough, and everything that you touch or do will be compromised by your own sinfulness, and therefore the only way for you to come to Christ is to say, I can't do this, I need your help. And in that moment of dependency, that's when conversion comes and you enter into the kingdom. So it is self-assurance and self-vindication and self-justification that move you further and further away from the kingdom, it is the realization that I need help and I can't do this that actually ushers you into the kingdom. Jesus says that people have to become like children. They have to become dependent, helpless, and trusting in order to come into the kingdom. And so what happens later on in Matthew, you'll see that it becomes the mission of Jesus to actually become the object of faith and the means by which these disciples would come into the kingdom. So Jesus not only becomes the great example of dependency, but he becomes the ultimate object of dependency as people place their faith and hope in his work so that their sins can be forgiven. So it takes trust to be able to say, Father, I ask you to forgive my sins based upon what Jesus has done on the cross and count his death as my own. That is trust. That is dependency. It's a self-mortification where you say, I can't do this on my own. I need Christ to pay my penalty instead. Instead of placing childlike dependent faith in Christ's sacrifice as a sufficient payment for their sins, the self-assured person thinks that they can do it on their own. But no one comes to the kingdom unless it is through humble, dependent faith. So, if you're here today or you listen over her podcast or you're in worship too this morning, you need to know this very clearly. Nobody is granted eternal life by means of self-action, by self-improvement. It is when you come to the end of yourself and say, I need someone else's help. I've made a mess of my life. I am so done with me that then conversion comes as someone says, I take Christ as my Savior and put my trust in Him. That's the basics of the kingdom. 
So that's the first problem, how somebody gets in. So we solved the first one. How do you get into the kingdom? But then notice here, third, that life in the kingdom then is continually lived by this dependent faith. So many believers make the mistake of thinking that they come to their salvation by faith alone, and then they think the rest of their Christian life is lived by their own strength alone. Jesus gets to the answer of the original question. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. So he not only says, look, you'll you'll miss the kingdom if you don't become like this child. He then says, if you become like this child, you will be the greatest in the kingdom. So what does this mean? What is it about this child? Some think that it's his humility. But the problem with thinking it's humility that Jesus is is identifying here, is that we all know, if you've had children, that children are inherently not humble. They're incredibly self-absorbed. In fact, they really are who we are in raw form. It is that they want what they want it, and they want it now, and if they don't get what they want, they cry, scream, wail, and pitch a fit. And the reality is, somehow over time, someone taught you that it's not socially acceptable to do that. But the reality is, if you could and get away with it, you would still flare your arms, scream at the top of your lungs, or pull your blankets over your head and suck your thumb when you're depressed. (laughs) That's who we are at our core. So it can't be humility, because children are not inherently humble. He says, humble yourself like this child. He doesn't say, humble yourself like this humble child. But humble yourself like this child. So greatness is tied to how you get in and also how you live. And they are one and the same. And what he's advocating here is dependency. He's saying you get into the kingdom by dependency and then how you live the rest of your life is dependency. He's simply calling for a continuation of the kind of dependency that he's just taught. That there's a connection between how you get into the kingdom and then how you live in the kingdom. Greatness, therefore, is not defined by prideful triumph, but by personal trust. In other words, the people who are great in the kingdom are people who learn to be dependent on Christ all of their lives. And the more they know of Him and the more they understand of grace, the more they understand of the beauty of what God has done, the more dependent they become, the more trusting they become in Him. So the definition of greatness then is dependency. God-dependent faith, this dependent faith, is at the root of both justification, how you're forgiven of your sins, and sanctification, how you are made righteous. See, there's often times that I've run into this personally in my own life, and I'm sure that you do as well, and that is that I develop too strong of a wall or a separation between the faith that was brought about to bring justification from faith that brings about sanctification. Or I think, you know, I'm dependent on Christ and coming to salvation, but the dependency in this arena, in terms of living as a follower of Jesus, that, that's that's really not connected to faith. And, and here's why. Here's the mistake that you make when you think that way. I'll summarize it this way: it's the mistake of thinking that your just your sanctification has nothing to do with your justification, or in other words, that your good things that you do have nothing to do with the fact that you're fully forgiven. And let me tell you, those two things are absolutely linked. And here's how. There is no way that you will do anything really good unless you know that you stand before God absolutely perfect, clean, and forgiven. And the reason is, is that if you think that you're not fully forgiven, then anything good that you do, you do so you can earn God's favor. 
And while you may have never thought that you could earn God's favor for salvation, you earn God's favor all day long by the things that you try and do. So therefore, how does justification or how does being fully forgiven, how does faith and dependency in Christ relate to sanctification? It relates this way. If I am fully forgiven of all things past, present, and future, if everything that I am is approved by God, everything that I am, God looks at me and loves me just the way that I am by His grace through Christ, that means I am free to do things that honor Him without fear of consequence or trying to earn His approval. It means that being justified frees me to actually really do something that's really good and not do something good so that it'll make me feel better or somehow make God more like like me more. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, Imagine a, um, a king who one time had a servant who came into his presence. The servant was a gardener and he grew uh, beautiful carrots. And the servant came in with this beautiful carrot and he bent down on his knee, and he held up his carrot to his king and said, Oh, sovereign king, you are a gracious, generous king. I love you as my king, and because of that, I bring this carrot to you today, the best of my produce as my offering to you. I love you, my king. And he hands the king the carrot. The king looks at it, thanks the servant, and hands the carrot back to him and says, Dear sir, I, I appreciate your love for me. I, I don't need the carrot, but I appreciate the love. In fact, I appreciate it so much that I actually have two acres of land right next to your property, and I'm going to give you that property. So you can take your your produce and and, and grow more of it and give it away and, and feed your family. I'm going to bless you with two additional acres. And the servant left just floored and blessed and encouraged. Well, there's a nobleman who saw this scene unfold in front of him, and he thought, boy... That was a generous king, and that was a pretty good move on the part of the servant. And so he was a man who raised horses. And so he went to his stable and uh, grabbed the finest steed he could find, and brought the steed into the king's presence, bent uh, uh, down on his knee, and said to the king, Oh, sovereign Lord, I love you. You are a great king. There's no other king in the world I'd rather have him. Because of that, I I I give you this steed, this this precious horse from my own stable. The king looked at the horse and looked at the nobleman and said, Thank you, and walked away with the horse. And the nobleman was standing there, shocked, because of the difference of the scene between him and of the servant. The king happened to notice the awkward moment, turned to him and said, Oh, you're probably wondering about the difference between the two scenarios, aren't you? And the nobleman said, Well, as a matter of fact, I am. He said, You know the difference between you and the servant? He said, No. He said, The difference is is that the servant gave the carrot to me, but you gave the horse to yourself. That's the difference of the importance of justification. It is that you are free and forgiven and that gifts don't become gifts that you say you give to God or things that you do for Him that are actually just a quid pro quo between you and God. So dependency is the key. It's the key of how you get into the kingdom, but it's also the key of how you live out your life in the kingdom. Now, to make this point even clearer, Jesus goes through a series of warnings that true dependency should be demonstrated by love. In other words, if you really understand what true dependency is, it should create within you this love for other people, specifically the little ones. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In other words, there's a connection between understanding the love of God and a willingness to lay down our lives for others. 
Now, in this section, verses 5 to 14, Jesus is going to help us understand what dependency really looks like in terms of when you get it, how do you respond to people around you? He's going to talk about the little ones. The little ones refer to those who are dependent themselves. It could refer to children. It could refer to others who have particular wants or needs in their life. It could also refer to those who are very young in the faith. It's not very clear exactly who Jesus is referring to. He simply wants to make the point that this dependency that you are living in based upon who Christ is to you and and your dependency upon Him, the effect of that and how you will then treat others around you in order to elevate the importance of this dependency. So dependency is the target, and now Jesus comes at it from another angle. He gives us the following warnings. The first is beware of compartmentalizing. In other words... Be careful that you don't distinguish between great people and little people. Be careful that you don't distinguish between those who are dependent and obviously dependent and those who are independent as if somehow ministering to them would be greater than ministering to those who are dependent. He says, verse 5, Whoever receives such one such child in my name receives me. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is the treatment of people who are less than great is not only important to Jesus, notice, it's personal for Jesus. Whoso receives a little one. So the idea is that in your dependency, the the mindset shift that should be there is you see life through a different lens, and if you are receiving a little one, who doesn't have the esteem, the honor, the praise, the status in the culture. Jesus says when you receive one of these little ones, be it a a dependent child or be it a person whose faith is really young or an old person, someone who can't give you something back, when you receive someone like that, Jesus says, you receive me. So he's trying to elevate the the, the value of dependency in the kingdom. This, This is why James, in James chapter 1, says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. When the church of Jesus Christ understands its dependency on God and its role to have dependency lived out, the effect is that people in the church go out and love people who are hurting. That's why there are names on hospitals like Methodist or Baptist Hospital. There's something incredibly incredibly powerful when the followers of Jesus truly care for those who are the dependent ones in our society. So dependent people look at a world that has needs and think, you know what, I, I need to pour out my life because this child, this hurting person, this is what I was like when God intervened in my life. So therefore, there are a few things more beautiful than when dependent believers engage in things like adoption, foster care, working with the disabled, caring for the elderly. You have an elderly parent that you go and visit, Alzheimer's, the window is closing and you sit there and you have to tell the person who your name is over and over and over and you watch the shrinking reality of that person in your life. Listen, when you receive them, that's personal for Jesus. Don't you dare walk out of that room and go, it's a pointless visit. This is the essence of ministry. It's the, it's the heart of Jesus. 
And what he's warning about is this mentality that we human beings would have that real ministry exists on a stage with lights or something that's broadcast around the world. Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is personal when it becomes receiving one of these little ones. Ministering to the homeless, discipling the underprivileged, or any number of ministries are not just ways to serve. These are ways that you serve Jesus. So if you serve out of the spotlight, and if you minister to the defenseless, if you serve in some corner of the kingdom, and you think this really isn't important because of the caliber of the people that you serve, you are terribly mistaken. And that is you are really serving Jesus personally. So for every mom who takes care of little children, for years pours your life into them, changes diapers, prays over those kids, picks up countless number of Cheerios on the ground, finds various ways to love your children, and you, you, you poured Christ into them, and there's some days that you just think, you know what, what, this really is not ministry. I would tell you, oh my word, it is so ministry. For those of you who serve people in a particular segment of our culture, who are the outcasts, the abused, the hated, the scorned, the underprivileged, you realize that the people who we think are great in this world are probably going to have nosebleed seats in the kingdom, and people who we don't even know about, they're going to get front row box seats in the kingdom. It's the inversion of the values that Jesus wants us to see. The second thing is, Beware of consequences. Jesus wants us to see that how you deal with these little ones is serious. To counteract the tendency to think that the more significant the person is, the more significant the ministry is, Jesus warns his disciples about, look, if you cause a little one to stumble, it's a big deal. If you cause a little one to stumble, better for you to be drowned in the sea. A millstone hung about your neck. And it's designed to be this, this, this horrific, scary execution where someone takes a big stone and they tie it on your neck and throw you in the sea and you're drowned. It's meant to shudder. What Jesus is saying there is, is for you to treat with contempt these little ones is to be guilty of a crime that Jesus says deserves capital punishment. The word cause to sin means to cause someone to trip, someone to lose their faith, somebody to walk away. And it seems what Jesus is advocating here is that we need to be careful to walk in such a way that we don't shake the simple trust of little ones. That could be children. That could also be young in the faith. Well, how many children have grown up in Christian homes where their parents were horrible examples of this dichotomy between saying amen on Sunday and living like a pagan Monday through Saturday, and they grew up in this hypocritical home, and they said, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with that. To those parents, Jesus says, you ought not do that because these are little ones and they're important to me. The problem is not just hypocrisy. No, the problem is, is if you do this, there is stern judgment for causing a little one to stumble. Or for a young believer who comes into the mix and suddenly hears all these things about legalistic standards and how you ought to live and someone's like, you know, I don't want anything to do with with, with that. And then they walk away because that's not really the version of Christianity that really resonated within their hearts when they came to faith in Christ in the first place. And Jesus warns the church to be careful that you not put things in front of little ones that cause them to stumble. 
Then he says, beware of a casual approach to sin. Verse 7, he says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. He he laments the fallen world that we live in that's filled with tempters and temptations and their inevitability. He says, for it is necessary that temptations come. His focus, though, is on those who would create the temptation. He wants the person who is a potential tempter to consider carefully what they're doing. And therefore, he says, verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, you've probably heard this before. Matthew 5 says a very similar thing. But in that context, Jesus was talking in the Sermon on the Mount about taking aggressive actions to be righteous. In this case, he's saying, take aggressive actions so you don't cause a little one to sin. Whereas before it was about personal righteousness, in this case he says, don't you dare tempt my little ones because they are precious to me. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. He's warning about being overly casual with tempting others. So the question is, is there anything in your life or in your world that if a little one caught wind of or was a part of with you would cause them to be tempted? And the reality is you have not only a a reason for aggressive sanctification because of your own soul, but you have aggressive need for sanctification because the eyes of little ones are watching. Again, causing a little one to fall into sin is serious enough that radical action is required. Some of you know what it was like. You grew up in a home. You, you, you got the same kind of appetite as your mom and dad. You watched them as they, they fell into their sins. And it, it, it's come time in this generation, in your lifetime, to break that cycle and to realize the effects of sin are not only on you, but also on the people around you and specifically little ones who are watching and developing their, ki- their, their appetites. Finally, he says, beware of callousness. Beware of callousness. It's given to the disciples a warning against having a mindset of, what's the big deal? They're so little, they're not that important anyways. And to that, Jesus says this. See that you do not not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. (laughs) I I don't I've looked all week and I don't have a clue as to what that means so if you can figure it out tell me because I don't have any idea so um, I got some ideas but I don't know what that means so just so you know there's things in the Bible that we don't I don't know what they mean which is why preaching is dependency and study is dependency. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the, the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that, that never went astray. So Jesus' point here is this. Don't, don't, don't just have a perspective of, well doesn't really matter because they're such, they're such a little person anyways. They're just disabled. They're, they're, um, they just have Alzheimer's. They're just a three-year-old child. It's, it's just serving in the nursery. It's, they're just so young in the faith. Jesus is talking about a priority of heart that looks 
and says, you know what, you have to value life and people differently than the world does. The people people in the world would say, well, that's, that's, that's a big time guy. Go after him if he strays. Go win him back, because if, if we lose him, the kingdom's in the tank. And Jesus would say, no, it's the little ones that you cannot neglect and forget. It's the realization that, that there are people who are both young in their faith and young in their trust, and realizing that trying to help them grow in their relationship with Christ has to be of high priority. And that's why he ends in verse 14. He says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In other words, God is saying here, look, my desire is I I don't want these little ones to perish. In other words, neither should you. But the problem is, is you get so backwards in your thinking that you begin to justify with some sort of, 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 of decision-making process that's so pragmatic that you say, well, it doesn't really matter. They're just a little one anyways, and they don't really make that big of a difference. Their overall contribution to society or the context of the church is so small, we have to make a difficult decision to kind of let them go. And Jesus cautions us to be sure that we're making decisions on the right value set. God doesn't desire for one of these little ones to stumble, to be neglected, or to perish. And it just relates to what their priority needs to be. So let me ask you, here's a penetrating question. When you got up and thought about church today, what was your priority? Some of you, your priority was to get here on time, right? But but what what is your priority as you've come today? Do you come with a perspective of, of, is it me-focused or is it others-focused? When you walked into the building today, was all that you could think about is how you could get to your place to get your seat, to find your friends? And how many people perhaps did you walk by in the hallway today who you either don't know or maybe there's a a hurting person that just needs simply someone to say, hey, are you okay? Can I help you? And yet the reality is sometimes the loneliest place in the world could be is in a large crowd. And yet some of you are, are so insecure about going up to somebody and saying, hey, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, as if you should know their name, that the result is you've got a, a tunnel vision and you come on Sunday and your goal is to talk to only the people that you know. And the reality is there's little ones in our building, not just children, I mean little ones in the hallways who are hurting, people who've come here, and this is their last hope. And they're going to base a decision about what they think about Christianity based upon the conduct of the body of Christ and how they're greeted, loved, and how they're approached. So can I just remind you that Sunday morning is not just about us? And can I remind you that if everyone in this whole church has a varsity level knowledge of the Bible, then we got some big problems. There's a, a man I was talking to recently who's a, a new believer. He was sharing with me that he's embarrassed because he, when he goes to a men's Bible study, everyone in the room, when someone says, turn to the book of Galatians, knows exactly where it is, and he has to look in the index. And he was tempted to say, you know what, I, I don't even know if I should be in that Bible study anymore. I just don't know enough of the Bible to be in that Bible study. And I said to him, don't you dare leave. Because if you leave, then we'll all start to think that Christianity exists and knowing exactly where the books of the Bible are. And we need people like you to remind us of what it's like to grow in our relationship with Christ. We need fresh converts, young disciples, or the church loses its moorings. See, the reality is Jesus wants these little ones to be on our mindset. To be on our minds. To have a a mindset toward them that is different than how the world would think. So here's another penetrating question. 
So who are the little people? Who are the little ones in your life? Who are the dependent people that are in your orbit? Or does everybody that you hang out with, talk to, serve with, and you minister to, do they just look like you, act like you, talk like you? I would challenge you, if that's if you don't have anyone in your life that's risky and sucks the life out of you every once in a while, then, then, then you've got a problem. You might think, well, I want, I want to be safe. I want to be safe. Jesus didn't save you to be safe. He saved you to free you and make you safe so you can go love hard and risky people. So what are the implications for us? I'm starting to get into those. Here they are. Number one, the gospel of faith alone through Christ alone defines everything about us and what we do. Listen, the gospel is not just how you got into heaven. The gospel, faith alone through Christ alone, is the essence of not only who you are, but what you do. Do not separate the gospel from your ministry, or you will somehow make it about you. You walk into your ministry, God, I thank you today that I am a person fully redeemed, fully forgiven, and therefore I can love these people not because I can somehow earn your favor, but in order so that you, God, will be honored by my selflessness and and lack of self-concern. Remind yourself, Jesus died so that it's not about you. Number two. Those who are captivated by dependent faith are compelled to love dependent little one kind of people. It just makes sense that that people who understand dependency are compelled to love little ones. They, They see in the little ones who they are before God. And so therefore, they have these little ones in their life. They have these little ones in order to help them understand the reality of who they are. They're not above serving in a capacity that's menial or or in an arena that somehow demonstrates the importance of these dependent ones. The essence of understanding dependent faith is that then you live out that dependent faith by loving those who are in fact dependent. Third, the definition of success at College Park must always be dependency and selfless love, not size, scope, facility, programs, or community perception. Here's my caution. On the week when we put up 40-foot walls, on a week where you probably drove in and went, wow, things are moving from a construction standpoint, I just want to remind all of us that we ought to pray that our community says, wow, look how they love each other and others, not wow, that's a big building. And then finally, we must strive to make this church a hospital for hurting people. I just want to remind you that in this building today, are hurting people... They're abandoned, they're outcast, they're disenfranchised, they're neglected, they're scorned, they're hated, they're abused. And if that's how you are today, I just want you to tell you something. You are welcome here. You came to the right place because all of us have been disenfranchised by our sin and it's only because of Jesus that we have any hope. And people who get that then live like that to people who are disenfranchised, hurting, and abused. And they personally invest themselves in the lives of those people because it just makes sense in light of the glory of the gospel. At our last Fresh Encounter service, we invited some people to come up to the front and pray at the end if God was dealing with their hearts over the subject of the fear of man. And there were a number of people who knelt up here and prayed. But if you're in that service, you'll remember that 
secondly, we asked people, if you know someone who's up front, go ahead and come up here and put your hand on them and just, as a witness, join them in their humility and in your support. And it was when that group of people came up and put their hand, the mood and the room completely changed, and suddenly you could hear audible weeping as people were ministering and loving on each other by simple presence. See, there's a reason why Christ became a man. There's a reason why Jesus is saying that dependency has to be lived out because there's something beautiful and powerful, not just by saying, hey, I'll pray for you from a distance, but by coming near and close and putting your hands on someone or getting involved in their life such that you now enter the world of a person who has deep, deep need. So here's how Jesus defines success. Here's how Jesus defines greatness. It is that his followers run to him for for forgiveness and they linger there to then learn how to live dependent lives. Oh, College Park, let us never become so great that we are no longer truly great in God's eyes. And let us pray, God, help us to be dependent upon you and to be so enamored with your grace that we can love the little ones and do so with a mindset that reflects a value set of what is truly great. Guard us from a corner office mentality that can creep even into the church of the living God. Father, I pray that you would Take your word and apply it in the hearts of our people today to be able to have someone or some arena or some venue where ministering to the little ones is a part of the equation. For a neighbor who's different, for a co-worker who just drains all of the energy out of us, for a, the eyesight to be able to see people at Uh, even in the the hallway today through a different lens for motivation for those who serve in our children's ministry or, Father, for those who care for people who are disabled. God, help us to see this is the essence of true greatness in your kingdom. God, guard us from a wrong value set, a wrong mindset. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I love you.